Hello and welcome to IR Thinker, where international affairs are discussed. I'm Martin Zubko. Today we're going to speak about the geopolitics of Saudi Arabia with my guest Aziz Algashian. Hello, Aziz. Hello, hello. Good to see you. Thank you very much for having me. Dr. Aziz Algashian is a captivating Saudi scholar who is researching Saudi Arabia foreign policy. He obtained his PhD from the University of Essex, where he was teaching international relations, politics and Middle Eastern studies. His current research is connected to Saudi Arabia foreign policy, relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel, and also the constructions of the political nature or identity of Saudi Arabia. His research uh, style or his research exploration is mostly defined by exploring the dialogue and the collaborations, how the political and international actors collaborate, how they speak together. He is frequent guest to media, international media like France 24, Sky, BBC, Forces TV and Russia Today and others. So he's very experienced podcaster as well. And I think we'll enjoy our talk today. And let's start with the first question. So we know that Saudi Arabia is a very special country in international relations because it has more roles. And one of those roles is being a defender of Muslim world. That's a traditional role of Saudi Arabia. So let's start with a bit of definition. Well, I just want to say uh, uh, thank you again for having me and, and for this very warm and kind introduction. Um, in regards to the question, your first question, I think it's very important regarding the definitions because uh, really a lot of the times we struggle with trying to define one thing. And, and I think my suggestion is that always, rather than stick with one definition, is to explore a, a wide array of definitions and and allow the reader and the student really to, to ascertain for themselves what they could define. So I, in my definition, my humble thing is that <clears throat> this defender uh, of Saudi, um, Saudi uh, defender of Islam, or I would also say the propagator of Islam, to a certain extent, really goes down to the core um, and the crux of its uh, identity. And it goes to the very beginning uh, of Saudi uh, establishment. It was really with Muhammad bin Saud. There was someone uh, who, who, was, who Saudi Arabia is named after, who Muhammad bin Saud, it puts the Saudi in Saudi Arabia, with Muhammad Abdul Wahab, uh, that was a scholar in Saudi Arabia and, and a propagator here of, of um, a revisionist thinker of Saudi, of, I'm sorry, of Islam. Um, and I think it was that fusion between religion and politics that has taken place since I believe 1744. So it goes very way, it goes a lot very, very way back. Uh, personally, uh, I think what's very interesting is this fusion uh, of the politics and the, and the religious suggests that Saudi nationalism, which has been on the rise for the past few years, maybe on, 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 on the uh, decent, uh, given the regionalism that's taken place, uh, cannot separate itself from the religious identity. I think too many times when we look at the Middle East, too many people kind of look at secular movements, pan-Arab movements, or explicitly Islamist movements. And I think in general, people have treated both um, 
separate, too separately, not overly connected. And I think there is room for them to overlap. And I think the biggest, the best example of where they over overlap is is in the Saudi case. You know, they know how to manage between the religious, the tribal, the national, uh, the regional, and international, all in one. So I think it's a very interesting um, projection of identity that they they can do. So it really goes at the heart of it. And personally. I don't know, forgive me if I've uh, preempted some of your questions, but I don't think, irrespective of all what's going on and the libera- liberalization that's taken place, that Saudi is going to move away from religion. I think it's always going to be embedded in it. What is the role of Saudi Arabia being a sort of like custodianship of Mecca? You know, is this uh, a significant in diplomacy or is it taken automatically that people even don't think about it? Because to my students and to me, you know, that's quite a significant fact because we know that all the Muslim people are supposed to go to Mecca and, you know, to do the Hajj as, as a once per life at least, you know. So this is the Saudi Arabia as a destination. So mm. therefore, in some way, Saudi Arabia must be open to the Islamic world to the Arab world. Well, I, I like this point that it's being very open because a lot of the times people spoke about it as a constraint rather than as a facilitator. So indeed, you know, Saudi gives the custodianship of Saudi uh, regarding these holy mosques and holy sites gives it a lot of symbolic power, and I think it gives it a lot of symbolic. Um, uh, obligations as well and you could see uh, that that in two main uh, milestones of the year which is in Ramadan and then Al-Hajj and personally I went I was on Al Jazeera recently when they spoke to me and they said well you know can you just tell us a bit more about uh, what's going on there and and how what kind of scale is it um I remember sharing with them because I was thankfully in Ramadan uh, in 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 Mecca in Ramadan, and I remember the first thing that I asked, I, as as much as I was supposed to be spiritual and and and, and religious minded, now I was like, man, how much does all this cost? You know what I'm saying? I was saying literally how much this this is a massive operation, and akin to, for example, hosting the World Cup, akin to hosting international events, Saudi does this twice a year. Uh, with that scale, of course, it it uh, supports it. And for example, they're already planning for the Hajj next year, um, so a lot of resources goes to it. Now, they, I think they realize that in order for them to be to maintain that symbolic position, they need to invest and allocate a lot of resources to it, which they do. Now, I think as a result, they have to make themselves also open and facilitate a lot of other people to come into Saudi Arabia, which they do. So for example, they have their own uh, pilgrims, have their own uh, airport. There's there's a specialized airport where they receive pilgrims and it's only opened during the Hajj season. So it tells you that, okay, this is the, you know, this is the, the, the allocation of resources but also, I think from a from a political point of view, in my opinion, there's also responsibility, and there's also aspect of constraints. So Saudi can't, in my opinion, can't achieve its rational interests 
can't be overly rational minded in regards to as in cost benefit analysis and obtain its its interests too lightly without taking this into consideration. So for example, Saudi couldn't normalize relations with Israel without having something on, on the table for at least the Palestinians to, to legitimize this relationship. So as a result, uh, so for example, other countries in the GCC, UAE, Bahrain, they, didn't, they don't have the same symbolic obligations that Saudi Arabia does. So what I find very interesting about this, and I think more intellectually that's worth, I think people, students paying attention to this factor is that this resulted in Saudi, or this forced Saudi to be very pragmatic in their foreign policy. This kind of forced Saudi to, to develop uh, mechanisms uh, and processes and principles in their discourse, in their projection, in, and in obtaining their interests. They would obtain their interests, but in a different way. They would be more vague about it uh, a lot of the times. Uh, they would be more um, careful. Sometimes it would be more reactive because of the symbolic issue that they have to obtain. In other words, they're balancing between uh, their identity and its obligations and their interests. And this balancing act, I think Saudi has done very well. This is what I find personally most fascinating about Saudi foreign policy and, it's, and how it navigates geopolitics. It's this balancing principle that it has. And do you think, Aziz, that this topic or this issue is well known among Western or Asian diplomats and politicians? Or it's something that, you know, you think that we should talk about much more so people understand how to deal with Saudi Arabia. When I speak to Saudi diplomat, I'm not speaking only to Saudi Arabia, but I'm, you know, like indirectly, I'm speaking to the Muslim world. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think when it comes to, so the, the question is very big, to be honest. I think when it comes to the to the Muslim world, uh, I think Saudi Arabia represents a side of the Muslim world. Um, there's a lot of people that, by the way, don't agree with Saudi Palestinianship regarding regarding Saudi Arabia. There's a lot of others that say maybe this, maybe they're not because they are a monarchy. They shouldn't be. And this is actually very, um, this is very much undermining religion. The fact that there is a monarchy that is serving this. So, by essence, this is not, this is, this is not, this is not uh, legitimate. Uh, and the Saudi governance isn't legitimate. And so, this is the the reality of the debate. There's a lot of times when we see it in geopolitics, a lot of saying people, well, they're not worthy. I mean, you, you could take, for example, uh, Al Khomeini, Khomeini's discourse. And saying, how can they, may God curse them, as in, you know, the, the, the ruling elite here, uh, serve, they're not even fit to serve the the, 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 the the two holy shrines. So I think when it comes to this, indeed, the, the Muslim world is not monolithic. Um, but I think there is this aspect of that unifies uh, something that they all agree on, is the importance of Mecca and Medina. And that is something that I think works a lot in favor of Saudi, is that, okay, this is a red line in many ways that no one can agree. And no one can dispute the fact of what Saudi does to these two uh, shrines, in my opinion, or to the holy sites. So while there is a religious political debate, th this has to be contextualized. 
In regarding to the first point of your question, um, regarding if people know enough about this, I think people think they know about this in the West. I think a lot of the times what I find mostly concerning is when you speak, even when I was in the UK, you know, they, they would speak you know, as soon as you say Saudi Arabia, they want to finish the sentence for you. Like, oh, I know Saudi Arabia. One, two, three, four, five. Okay. okay. Yeah. Sorry. It's a bit more, it's a bit more con convoluted than that. It's a bit more complex than that. Oh yeah. There's a Wahhabi thing. One, two, and three, isn't it? And I'm like, well, no Saudi ever explains or defines them, define themselves as a Wahhabi, for example. So here, and I like this aspect of Wahhabism because it's precisely a, a phrase, a term that's been imposed upon Saudis, while Saudis don't ascribe to it. So I think a lot of the times people in the West think they know about Saudi Arabia when they don't. And that's even more dangerous because knowing some, not knowing anything is bad, but knowing a little bit about something is far more dangerous. And I think there's a lot of dangerous uh, perceptions out there regarding Saudi. How would you evaluate uh, Mohammed bin Salman and his connection to this identity building, you know, for instance, before him, you had some sort of development in that issue. How is it now? Is he supporting the same stream like in the past or he tries to change that course a little bit? No, in general, Hamad bin Salman is uh, very much detaching. In my opinion, detach detaching Saudi. He changing evolving i would say saudi identity i won't say complete he's detaching it from the things that that lethargy uh in saudi uh, that identity of being just being a bit too relaxed to someone you know a country being urgent um this country that's being somewhat kind of passive a little bit in its foreign policy to now being a bit more proactive and i think when it comes to religion and in nationalism, while what he's changing is the social conservatism, not necessarily the religious conservatism. Now, he is very much undergoing a process of reevaluating our relationship with Islam, and he's making it our, uh, a more moderate uh, relationship, but not fundamentally different. So this is what he's saying. This is what he's trying to do. And the reason being that why a lot of these, um, I would say, dogmatics, uh, demagogues uh, of religion that existed, and to be honest, still exist till now, because it wasn't a long, long time ago. There was a lot of political context to that, too. You know, and he's changing that. Uh, you know, Saudi is also not just a religious uh Community. By the way, some communities in Saudi aren't religious at all. They're 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 a bit more relaxed. I won't say secular, but a bit more relaxed. Uh, but I think what some a lot of people don't see, in my opinion, is how Saudi is very socially conservative. Uh, and I think that is the issue that's really taking a long time to to thaw. So he, he's, in my opinion, I think he's trying to achieve that balance and he's still trying. It's still a process of balancing between the Saudi core Saudi identity of religion, uh, of traditions with the new, more modern, more um, assertive and practical side of Saudi. Uh, and I think that that's where he has a lot more to balance than his predecessors.
What about his support? You know, in the West, every week, every month, we have those special reports and tables about how many percent of people support certain politicians. Yeah. How is it yeah. in Saudi Arabia from your point of view? In my point of view, this is a very good question because uh, in, in my answer is that we could never know for, for certain, for many reasons. Um, and this is one of the reasons why people misunderstand Saudi Arabia. That's not an easy place to get clear-cut, raw information. Uh, and when you do meet these people, to what extent are they performative or to what extent do they really tell you what they what they feel? To what extent do they... So this is just the... the, the, the what I would like to preface my, my answer with. Uh, however, in general, he is very popular. He's very popular among the youth. He's more popular, I think, among uh, Saudi women. Uh, and I think he's very also, uh, this is something that a lot of people in the West probably get wrong, is that he's not popular amongst the, the older generation. And I disagree with that. I think from what I'm seeing and what I'm hearing, he is very popular because he is speaking to a Saudi that many people wanted to see. What made him very popular is that he was someone who is viewed as coming from the Saudi streets. You could say in Western terms, maybe a populist. You know, he was, he was someone that spoke, even his hand gestures, even his the way he spoke, even the way he puts his shamag, ragal, and then he puts it backwards like this, which means, which can suggest that, you know, he's he's in work mode. He's not overly symbolic and wearing the garb constantly like the predecessor used to be. You know, he's he's someone that's kind of uh, raising his uh, raising his his uh, sleeve, rolling his sleeves up. So he's viewed. He is very popular. Um, do people have a problem with some of the things that uh, take place in regards to concerts? And there there are these people, but I think they understand that this is what they have to do now. Does this go against him personally, or does this go against? This is something that's very difficult to know, but in general, he's very, very popular um, because of the reasons that I mentioned. The last question about the Saudi Arabia's identity is, what do you think is missing to the Western scholars or Asian scholars when they speak about Saudi Arabia and you think this is important to explain or to say also for my students? In my opinion, humility. I think that's the main important thing to look at. That's just in general. But I think the aspect in particular is that too many times people have tried to look at Saudi too. They tried to isolate Saudi identity too much. So too many people have said, no, it's tribalism. No, Saudi is religious. No, Saudi is national, nationalistic. It's actually what I think is important, what I think Saudi enables us to develop new concepts and new theories and approaches is the fact that we need to start looking at using a lens that looks at all of these things interchangeably and simultaneously. This is the thing that I think uh, not enough people are getting is the fact that how are all these factors, and they're right, they are there, but how do they intermix and how do they complement and speak to each other and operate 
and are projected all in the same time. Let's go to geopolitics more deeply now, and we will start with the first hot topic, and that's the Abraham Accords and uh -huh. Israel in the Middle East in connection with Saudi Arabia. So let's let's divide this question into two sub sub questions. So firstly, what is the impact or influence of the Abraham Accords in the Middle East from the Saudi point of view or Saudi Arabia's perspective? And second question, maybe you can elaborate a little bit about on Israeli and Saudi Arabia relations after the Abraham Accords. If there is some sort of progress, something change or nothing change. Okay. So when it comes to the Abraham Accords, which is in particular the UAE, Bahrain, Israel, in addition to Morocco and, and Sudan. But by the way, when they say, a lot of people say Abraham Accords, they kind of like uh, Morocco and, and Sudan are like, yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, it, these are the two. And the reason why they're focusing a lot on Bahrain and UAE, this is, I think, from the Israeli-centric side, is because they are changing the political landscape of Arab-Israeli relations. And this political landscape enables or facilitates more Saudi-Israeli interactions. And also the fact that, you know, this change of political contours or the landscape suggests, uh, it creates a condition that Saudi, you know, all you have to do is just accept it and it's already there. You know, they're doing everything they can. And this is really Israel here to get Saudi on board. But I think now it goes into the, the second aspect to this, uh, which is how Saudi is dealing with this. Of course, for me, I think, first, the Abraham Accord is not a, a multilateral uh, agreement as much as they think. It's, it's a series of bilateral agreements. So the UAE has a range of things. Bahrain has one large paragraph with two subparagraphs. Morocco has uh, a, a literal legalistic document of what exchanges. Sudan has another paragraph that was signed 18 months later or so, you know, so it's not, it's not like a multilateral thing. But I think what happened is that uh, I think Saudi, Saudi saw that this went against its initiative and, and its worldview or its kind of approach to how to deal with the Israel-Palestine situation and the Arab-Israeli situation, which is the the Arab Peace Initiative that was 2002 Arab Peace Initiative that was built or based upon the Saudi-conceived Abdullah Plan of 2002. Um, and in my opinion, I think the Abraham Accords, particularly the UAE um, signing of the Abraham Accords, was perhaps understood as, I think it's it was understood as a as a as a, a way of trying to change the landscape of the Middle East into a way that the UAE sees it, and it was also uh, a bid for regional leadership or Arab leadership or at least leadership of a region 
um, that the UAE wants to see. And uh, in particular, so, uh, you know, as a result, this was maybe a challenge more than it was uh, anything else. Um, of course, UAE has agency here. Uh, it, it thought that this will be good for its uh, relations, uh, it's good for business, for tech, etc. cetera. Uh, what it is not is something against Iran, maybe we'll talk about, but uh, Saudi now sees, okay. And I think within this competition between Saudi Arabia and the UAE, in fact, I think the Saudi, the Abraham Accords is now more unappetizing for Saudi Arabia because it would be viewed as following the UAE lead into something that, by the way, once you cross that Rubicon of normalization, it's, it's almost impossible to cross it back. You know, normalization is like a is like a match. Once you, you you click it, it goes down in history. That's it. So I don't think Saudi will be too keen to to cross it and you know and be seen seeming as following the UAE lead. What's very interesting is that the UAE the theme of UAE leadership or MBZ leadership, to be precise, was laced throughout the rhetoric and discourse of the Abraham Accords, even when you hear Jared Kushner, for example, saying, you know, we we appreciate Mohammed bin Zayed, uh, the new the, the leader of this new Middle East. Oh, OK. So here is your leadership thing. Um, a UAE, uh, uh, a joint statement by Bahrain with the U.S. that we appreciate the leadership of MBZ in this regard. Oh, OK. So there's leadership all around this. And so. I think Saudi sensed that, and I think the Abraham Accords, and particularly Saudi not joining the Abraham Accords, is a result of this uh, leadership bid, this inter-GCC thing that's taking place. Israel and Saudi relations, this is where, where I think many people get this wrong, is that for them, history starts, the, the history of Israel-Saudi relations, as if it starts in 2010, or in the Arab Spring. And the reality is this is just very, very far-fetched. In my research, my research, I, you know, I, I began this research before the Arab Spring, when, when there was, uh, when it was part of an era that was, that Israel wasn't perceived as a potential uh, partner. And therefore, the questions that I ask now are different than the questions that people ask now. I'm sorry, the question that I asked then were different than the questions they ask now. And in my opinion, Saudi-Israeli relations, just to be short, is very pragmatic. Saudi has always been historically pragmatic towards Israel. Now, pragmatic doesn't necessarily mean cooperative. But what it does mean is, for example, less antagonistic. Um it could be perceived as cooperative from the Israeli side because they would have expected Saudi Arabia due to its identity, due to its uh, factors that we mentioned earlier to be something, you know, like um, to be something, you know, to expect more hostility. But Saudi was always very measured uh, when it came to Saudi Arabia and uh, when it came to Israel. And we can see this historically. So, but what's very interesting is that the theme of communication hasn't really changed fundamentally. So they've always communicated a pragmatism towards this. But who did they communicate this to? In fact, they communicated this to the United States because they know that 
a pragmatic stance with Israel is going to make it improve its relations with the United States. So that's why they were very careful, but at the same time, they had to adhere to their identity and to their position and their policies. And by the way, their grievances. A lot of the times people say, oh, the Saudis don't really care about that. I, I disagree with this. I think they a lot, a lot of Saudis do care about what's going on in the West Bank. They care, they care, they care, a lot of, they care about it a lot. I think a lot of people don't know what's going on in the West Bank, but they I know they care about it. So this is very interesting uh, to see the history of this pragmatism. But now I think due to the, to the new narrative in the Middle East, everything now is being amplified. And there are exchanges. There are, we can't deny that. I mean, only last week there was an Israeli team, eFIFA, here in Riyadh. Um, participating but is this because of a saudi policy or is this the result of saudi arabia changing not in the region but in the global sphere that it wants to be a global hub and as a result of it being a global hub you're seeing more saudi israeli interaction now the question here is how should we understand this and in my opinion of course others in tel aviv or elsewhere or dc even they like to say this as, oh, look at this, this is fantastic. Saudi Arabia is changing its policy to accommodate Israel. No, I think Saudi Arabia is becoming more of a global player. And as a result of that, Israel is interacting with that. How many Saudis do you see in Tel Aviv supporting? And that, that would be a change in policy. You know, and the reality is you don't see them. So this is a result of a spilling in effect of globalization. But now it's a question of how is it framed? And I think one of the things about, and I'm sorry to take a long time on this question, but one of the things about um, Saudi-Israeli relations now is really the framing of it. There's a lot of sensationalization taking place. There's a lot of headlines that are, you know, um, in, a, in a historic first. And you're like, no, it's not a historic first. Well, Saudi Arabia said they're willing to encourage negotiations with Israel. You know who said that? King Faisal said that in the late 1960s. I mean, you're talking about things, policies that Saudis have already said and are, keep saying. But the problem is that their history, history to them begins 2010. And when someone who doesn't have a life, much of a life like myself, all they do is very much look at this topic uh, and study how to study this topic. Uh, you realize, man, you know, the, the Saudis have actually been saying this and saying things like this for decades. So there's nothing new in how Saudi's projection itself. I think there is something new in the interactions. And that's that has to be mentioned. What is the influence of Israeli society on this? Because I had few episodes with the Israeli scars, you know, and the Israeli society is very divided. You have like very orthodox people following, you know, one stream, then you have Zionist people following, you know, another one. Then you have people who just want to have peace and you yeah. know coexistence with everyone. I mean, when you when you speak with your colleagues, scholars, maybe also from Israel, how yeah. big is this issue in the Saudi and Israeli relations? In my opinion, well, firstly, I'm not Israeli, so I'd, I'd prefer, you know yield to Israeli scholars, but I'll share my opinion as an outsider here. Um, in my opinion, there is also a misunderstanding of. Saudi in Israel. 
my understanding is that normalization of Saudi Arabia receives overwhelming support from all factors of of Israel and all societies um, because this is normalizing Israel into the region. That's difficult to see something, to, to see people go against that. Now, the question is also about sequence. Some who want to see peace with the Palestinians think that it's best to use Saudi, the Saudi card, the Saudi normalization card as leverage, as an incentive to uh, use for the Israeli government in order to do something on the Palestinian front, which will enable more security for both Palestine and Israel. And say, okay, if we use this card, we're actually losing uh, a card of leverage. Others, and there's a lot of them, quite frankly, of the pro kind of Abraham Accord uh, academics and activists, etc. We'll, we'll say, yeah, they want to see normalization with this aspect, and uh, they're, you know they're very they're very prominent. However, the prospects of normalization in Israel, the understanding of it, this is where it becomes very interesting. So recently, there was actually an Israeli academic, uh, not academic. There was an Israeli reporter, journalist who came and visited Saudi via her American passport, um, and this happens a lot, by the way. A lot of people that come to Saudi Arabia like to say they're Israeli here as if it was like an Israeli stamp or Saudi received it. Uh, and they use their 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 other passports. Uh, and she found that, wow, this is different than what I thought, what this what Israeli politicians were telling me. There were, you know, Israeli politicians were telling me that uh, this is her 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 saying this. Israeli politicians were telling us, as in Israelis, um, that uh, normalization is literally on the horizon. Uh, all these people love Sa Israelis and Saudi. Um, we're doing fantastic. Saudi needs us. And the reality is when she came here, she said, Aziz, I found that people were nice to me, when, even when they knew they were Israeli. And I, I wasn't surprised to, to, to hear that. Um, but when she said, well, people still actually believe in, in the Palestinian issue. No, it is still important for them. And secondly, I have no idea why people would think that you need Israel. This is an Israeli speaking for her, you know, coming to, to see it for herself. So it brings the question is, well, what's perpetuating this? Unfortunately, Israeli <clears throat> politicians use Saudi, use the Saudi identity more broadly to uh, one, gain political support. So normalization with, with Saudi Arabia is on the horizon here. We're going to do this to, to gain more political support. And secondly, <clears throat> to alleviate pressure, especially now, this current government in Israel, is to say, no, I think, you know, we're, we're on the cusp of something massive here. So, you know, we're... we're we are going to normalize relations with Saudi. So just, just, just bear in mind. Just, just hold on a little bit. So what this does is it really makes the idea of Saudi Arabia normalization with Saudi very imminent. <clears throat> so people domestically don't think that in Israel that Saudis really care about the Palestinian issue. Therefore, there's no real incentive to 
to think about that too much. So this is where public diplomacy needs to be focused on. And that's why where we're all joining as a community and saying, okay, there's a gross misunderstanding. This is why I appreciate your show. It's because we're talking about the misunderstandings, you know, on, on the people, people level, leave the politics side, you know, the fact that let us understand the reality of something. And, and so, um, you know, this is, this is the issue. One question for my students. You, ah. you mentioned Palestinians, and when I was ah. teaching in Scotland, some students ask why Saudi Arabia is not helping more to Palestinians because they were reading how Saudi Arabia was buying all those weapons from the United States, you know, how is the profit of the oil companies. So the perception is that Saudi Arabia has all the tools, resources to help them. But students were not sure where is that help. Sure. See, this is a question that's very common. And I'm glad you asked that question. Because Saudis, in my opinion, Saudis are, are helping. This is my answer. Saudis are helping the Palestinian issue in the way they think that is best to uh, achieve or produce a more conducive political solution. Now, when we look at a lot of the times... <clears throat> A lot of people are saying, well, why don't they help the Palestinians? As in, why don't they give them more military aspects? Why don't they give them more weapons? Why don't they give them more? This is what how some people understand the aspect of support. This is their definition of support. And the reality is, I think that is counterproductive. Because the more weapons go into this aspect, uh, into this hands, the more conflict is amplified and the more Palestinians are the ones at the losing end of this. Now, unlike others in the region, which they have claimed to have supported the Palestinian issue via weapons and via military support, these countries use them, use the Palestinian issue to further their political ends in the region. Saudi supported the Palestinian issue via a framework of the Arab Peace Initiative. To give right to provide a political horizon and to say, listen, Israel, we need to sort out this issue. And listen, Arabs, we need to unite and to sort this issue. The support, the, the way Saudi supports it is through the political establishment, because I think it knows that um, military assistance is just going to make it worse. And by the way, they, they know that because Saudi actually did support Saudi uh, Palestine militarily. It, it, in 1948, they sent their troops to fight in Palestine. And a lot of Saudi troops died. In 1973, you all know in the oil embargo, Saudi stopped the oil embargo to pressure the United States in order to reach a political solution. So the aspect is they know, Saudis know that there has to be a political solution here. So this is the way that makes it, uh, that people don't realize the way and the manifestation of Saudi support to the Palestinians. I don't want to go into, by the way, the amount of funds that go into Palestine, because I, 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 don't, I, I, don't, I don't feel comfortable saying, well, we give money. This, is, this, is, this does happen, but I'm not going to mention that. I'm not going to mention that because... I think focusing on the political support is better because I don't want to seem like someone is buying off uh, 
buying, buying away this, this critique. I think as a Saudi, I, I, I don't want to say, well, we give money. Th that's a very distasteful way of saying support, personally. I think this is our obligation to do this, to help people in need. But at the same time, the main support for Saudi Arabia is providing a political framework, which is the Arab Peace Initiative. And I invite all your students to look more into the Arab Peace Initiative, because that is something that many people don't realize that is there and don't realize how good of a deal it is. Thanks for this explanation, because, you know, I think that perception is also amplified by the war in Ukraine, where we see the weapons from the West coming to Ukraine. So I think some students automatically think, you know, about the weapons only as a, as a, as a style or as a form of the aid. So, you know, that's also important to, to mention, you know, nowadays. Let's go a little bit further. What's about Saudi Arabia and Syria, Assad's regime? You know, is there what sort of policy, what sort of approach of Saudi Arabia? Because on one hand, this civil war is just ongoing. You know, it's like 12 years already and still there is no a situation that we can say, oh, it's peaceful and you can go for holiday on holiday to Syria. You know, on the yes. other hand, you know, I think there are, there are some misinformation coming about Syria as well. So let's clarify this a little bit. Yeah. So I think when it comes to Saudi, of course, Saudi tried to overthrow the uh, the Assad regime, Assad himself. <clears throat> when it first started, uh, they didn't want to overthrow him. They wanted him to actually be calm, to manage the situation calmly. Because I think what Saudi is, and its vision and its preference for the region is a status quo uh, player. You know, it wants to have, it doesn't want to change different actors because i think instability for saudi is the worst enemy and i think this is going to come to the present but however saudi this is one of the reasons why i think there's turbulent relations between saudi arabia and the united states a big part of it comes from syria because of syria so it was the promise they received somewhat they thought they received the promise that <clears throat> Assad crossed the red line, then Obama is going to intervene militarily. And then as per Saudi, the nature of Saudi foreign policy, very uh, reactive. That's one of the reasons why it, it survived all these times is that it's very pragmatic. It doesn't do anything just proactively. <clears throat> it, it acted and then the United States didn't act. And so there was a situation where now they, I don't think they could go back and and this is one of the reasons why I think we see a regional agency now, which we'll get to. So when it comes to the normalization with Syria, <clears throat> in my opinion, firstly, Saudi has a regional view that it wants to be a stable region. And this is because it anybody looking at Saudi Arabia will immediately encounter Vision 2030. It is literally plastered everywhere. And this is a, a framework of Saudi trying to peel itself off from oil and to be more of a diverse economy and to have social changes and a more diverse economy with a lot of ambitious uh, plans and projects. Now, I think it knows that it cannot obtain these very lofty, very ambitious projects in an unstable region. 
And Syria is a part of that. So instability in Syria suggests that there could be instability in or a lack of confidence in investors going to Saudi Arabia because a lot of, for example, the drug trade, a lot of the, the aspects um, <clears throat> uh, of spilling over effects of conflict. So what Saudi Arabia wants to do is to say, okay, Syria, let's try to put you back into the Arab fold. <clears throat> and when we try to put you back in the Arab fold, this is a gradual process of trying to you know, invest in Syria in the long run of trying to make it at least not a Syria that's pro-Saudi, but at least a Syria that's not anti-Saudi. And I think this is why. So the competition between Saudi Arabia and Iran, et cetera, this is viewed too much in a zero-sum fashion. What I think is very interesting about the Saudi-Iran case, what is what is the most important thing is that I think all actors are not viewing the region any longer in a zero-sum fashion. So I think they're looking at, at Syria in this way, and they're trying to maintain a regional order. Now, what is precisely the policy? I think there is no clear policy. I think it's a wait and see approach. I think it's a, listen, let's begin this policy and see how it plays out in the future, because we don't know how, how it's going to go. But let's try to at least have the pathway to it. And also, I don't think Saudi is too eager and keen to embrace um, Assad too quickly because it doesn't want to seem too contradictory to its position. You know, it did try to overthrow this guy. Um, so it, it's going to be a slow, gradual process of trust building. And also it will see where investments can take place. And when I mean investments, not necessarily companies investing here and profit making, but at least in allocating their efforts into spheres that could at least make is Syria at best with the Arab fold, at worst, not anti-Saudi. We have mm. Sunni and Shi's, mm. and we have Saudi Arabia and Iran. Mm. Are you rivals or enemies? <laughs> uh, neither. Uh, and, and this is the reality. And I think what plagues the understanding of the Middle East, especially from outside to in, is a very binary lens. And, and the fact that there is like a binary framework and everything kind of fits into it. So there's a Sunni versus Shiite. Yeah, that makes sense. There's sometimes a Sunni Israeli versus Shiite. Uh, because somehow, you know, there is a tendency to make things very binary. And this is what we have to disrupt. Um, yes, there are Shiites, but when it came to the Iran-Iraq war, Shiites were fighting against Iran, for example. Yes, there are Shiites in Saudi Arabia. A lot of them work in the Saudi government, for example. Can't say they work in very top positions, uh, but they, 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 they work in the Saudi government. Um, the biggest people that have induced or affected Saudi Arabia, used most violence against Saudi, the Saudi government, Saudi people killed innocent Saudis, were actually Sunnis, Sunni extremists of Al-Qaeda. So to what extent is this uh, a rivalry because of there is this uh, sectarianism? And I think sectarianism 
this is now a question about really the study of sectarianism more than it is about Saudi Arabia and Iran. Because Saudi Arabia and Iran have ebbed and flowed their, their, their antagonism. And as I think Paul Arts and Jervis, some guy called Jervis, I think, anyways, uh, the scholars, read the book of Simon Mabon. Simon Mabon is a, is a good source on this. Um, uh, that there is a pragmatic antagonism that there is actually times where Saudi Arabia and Iran signed security deals. And this is what the latest rapprochement actually was built on that security deal in 1998 and 2001. So that notion that we are uh, forever rivals is not, uh, uh, not uh, is simplistic. Uh, and this idea that we don't like each other because one is Sunni, the other Shiite, is also very simplistic. Um, however, it's very easy to use this to explain the tensions. And this is why students and myself and others, us, all of us, we're all students at the end of the day, to uh, not fall into this very tempting trap. It's tempting to just say, oh, there's a Sunni, there's a Shiite, that's why it's very exotic. We don't know, we don't understand what Sunnis really are. We don't understand what Shiites, re, who, who they are. We understand it's very exotic and it's religious mumbo jumbo things that happened a long time ago. But that's the reason why they, they don't like each other. And that's a simplistic way of things. It's it, and, and I think that's why we have to approach this. There's been a lot of Sunni Shiite dialogue. There's been a lot of Sunni Shiite um, uh, cooperation. Uh, and the Middle East is very rich in that history. And it's very rich for very interesting events, which are memorable till today for many people, which yeah, I absolutely. think, you know, that's, that's similar to, for instance, Japan and China, South Korea, you know, where history plays a very important role in the relationship. Do you, to what extent is Assad regime sort of obstacle for better relationship between Saudi Arabia and Syria? I think in my opinion, uh, he can't. He 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 is the gateway to Syria because of his absolute control. I will say he's absolute control of the Syrian regime. Can't say Syria all of it. And and here I have to profess or confess I I, I I'm not a, a Syrian expert. Uh, but uh, what I know is that he's not even in control of all of Syria. So this is then brings into the question really of. Uh, you know, when we mention Syria or Saudi deals with Syria, who does it deal with? Um, I think, in my opinion, it made it clear that it, it is dealing with now the Assad regime, but it is dealing with it so carefully uh, and at arm's length, because I think it it is thinking about the region when it deals with the Assad. It's not thinking about Assad per se. You know, it is thinking about the region. It is thinking about, okay, it's time now to rehabilitate the region. Um, and I think, personally, Assad does have a role in maintaining this. He personally can be a spoiler by trying to go too much one way or the other. So in, in this kind of regional agency, we're starting to see more uh, roles and functions being illuminated even more. So, for example... You have the very two strong polars 
big polars of Saudi and, and, and Iran. You have, for example, the mediators, yeah, Oman and um, Iraq, their role. And in my opinion, Syria, Syria's role is just not to be anti-Saudi. <laughs> Yeah, you know, just it has to make sure it doesn't seem to be anti-Saudi. Um, and I think I can't really say. So I spoke to someone. I I used to think that Syria's role was the balancer between uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia. But you know, my Syrian colleague then said this was the old days. This was half of al-Assad. This is not Bashar al-Assad. You know, Bashar al-Assad most of the time between Saudi Arabia and Iran was actually turbulent between Saudi Arabia. I'm sorry, most of the relations between Saudi Arabia and Syria were actually turbulent under Assad, especially from 2005 in the assassination of Rafiq al-Hariri. That's when it became turbulent. 2006, when he called uh, in, the, in the Hezbollah war, he called uh, implicitly Saudi uh, half-men. These are the, the, the actions of half-men. Oh, half-men, all right. It cut relations, went back to 2008. A few years later, Arab Spring happened. So I think now the main aim is to make them say, okay, don't be anti-Saudi. Let's see how far we could take this relationship. And it's going to be, it's more up to the Assad than it is for Saudi. You know? Because that was my logic, you know, when we spoke about Iran, if there was no issue with Syria and Saudi Arabia would be like less busy, you know, dealing with Syria, maybe Saudi Arabia would have more time to deal with Iran and normalize the relations, you know, in, in, in some way, you know. So, so therefore, I asked that sort of Syrian question. But what do you think is the, is the future of Iran in terms of Saudi Arabia? Because what we see at the moment are those protests, you know, I think the situation in Iran is not easy, you know, for, for, for many people. And uh, some students might ask the very simple question, you know, is Saudi Arabia supporting those movements a little bit or not really? No, I, I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think a lot of people like to think that. I, I don't think it is. I don't think it's in, it's in its interest to try to overthrow the regime because Saudi doesn't know maybe there's another regime that could be worse. But, but however, in my opinion, I do think that these protests encourage Saudi to rapproach Iran. Because it, as you say, and you are right, and I think many others right, believe that uh, Iran is not going through a very good time or a stable time. You know, Iran is not at its, at its best, at its strongest. But in the Middle East, that's precisely when rapprochements sometimes take place. So, for example, in the Israel-Palestine issue, when Yasser Arafat in the early 90s stood with Saddam Hussein, the Gulf and the GCC, they isolated him and they cut him off. That was precisely when the Israeli government began to rapproach uh, the Palestinians because they, they're a bit more susceptible now. They're a bit more exposed. And I think with this, the same could be said with this situation now with Iran is that they're exposed, there are sanctions, and Saudi is using its economic leverage to incentivize Iran to be part of the region and be part of these all these regional uh, projects that if basically the region doesn't, uh, doesn't thrive, then this means it's not going to be good for Iran also. So 
I don't think that Saudis were trying to infiltrate, and that's not Saudi doctrine anyways, in, in my opinion. I mean, I think the Syrian case illustrated that, that it, it's it's very difficult, you know, to, they can to a certain extent, but there's an extent to Saudi, I think, ambitions or anybody, any any of the Gulf's ambitions to overthrow something as as, as significant as that. I don't think so. And I think Saudi's strength is in how it manages this situation. And that's how it's managing the situation by saying, okay, there are there are a lot of turbulence that you have. There's um, you know, you're not on your best time. It's it's time to we could we could cooperate now. One theoretical question. Um, we speak about geopolitics and it's it's you know quite complex in the Middle East that that you know it's natural, but do you think is there any hope for a security architecture in the Middle East where big countries like Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Iran, Syria, you know, UAE, they sign sort of, you know, pact or some sort of agreement, you know, about the security for the Middle East? Yeah, this is a question that's been thrown around a lot. And in and, and other words, there's been, this is, this is, there's this talk of, Arab NATO. And I don't think it's going to happen because I think the respective military doctrines of Arab states will be too difficult to fuse together. And now not necessarily the military doctrines, but you know, the, the military uh, fusion and the fact to build this infrastructure will have a lot of resistance for many reasons. Firstly, practically, militarily, uh, you know, the systems, military systems are just sometimes just too different. They're too different inside the GCC, let alone in in Iraq, which is probably heavily Russian and uh, somewhere else. So that's on the practical side. But also, I think on the political side, uh, it's some states, and particularly perhaps the smaller Gulf states, will be too wary that this may be uh, too much political, giving up too much political sovereignty uh, and that they could be at the forefront of this, of, of this pact and could be perhaps driven into things that they don't want to be driven to. Now, what's interesting about this is because Israel, especially last year when, when, when Biden visited Riyadh in the Jiddah summit, they said no normalization, but what about an air defense alliance. Let's listen to this, Martin. Air defense alliance. You know what no normalization means, but but yes to air defense alliance. This means akin to someone who likes to eat, like myself, uh, saying, you know what, I'm on a diet. I'm not going to have that small candy bar, but I will have that massive ice cream cake all to myself. An alliance is a very obligatory contractual form of cooperation so this is not happening between arabs themselves israel is going to be part of this now and it's going to do this against iran so we could so the arab states going to be at the forefront they know that they're going to be the buffer so this is very difficult uh, to see i do see not necessarily uh, a rigid infrastructure but i do see a more loose infrastructure I do see something like a, a hub of relations, of military relations, a security hub between these states. 
And I think with the regional agency that's taking place, I do see something like this. So we're dealing with something a bit more loose, uh, something that's less obligatory, something that will be less demanding for the the national infrastructures to to change too much. So uh, that's where I could see in regards to security cooperation with these Arab states. A hub is a very popular word, especially when we speak about Belt and Road Initiative. (laughs) So... What about Saudi Arabia and this initiative and, of course, China? Because we are reading many articles how Chinese diplomats and economic diplomats, they are flying to Riyadh, Jeddah, you know, to explore, to observe. But what is the reality? What is the real impact when you live in Saudi Arabia? What can you feel of coming of that initiative? In my opinion, well, Iran, I'm sorry, China is the biggest investor or, or investing partner for Saudi Arabia. <clears throat> and by the way, this is not due to an American vacuum, a perceived vacuum. This began in the early 2000s. So even in the foreign minister, the late foreign minister, Saud al-Faisal for Saudi Arabia, went on American TV and just said, listen, you know, we have interests too. We want, to, you know, China is now a rising market that requires a lot of energy. And this means that it's good business for us. But this does not mean that this goes against our relationship with you. Now, so this approach, this investment in China, by the way, is not new. This this began in the early 2000s. So I think Saudi finds the China market uh, to be very complementary with the Saudi ambitions. Or I would say the China vision with the uh, with Saudi vision, and it requires this uh, stability. That's one of the reasons why I think China was able to broker this this Iran Saudi deal. Was that okay? Well, the United States is hesitant. The the U.S. Saudi Arabia depended on the U.S. a lot for a while regarding uh, Iran. Can it impose? It began to. It be uh, began. People began to realize that okay, no, I don't think they can impose. Sometimes due to political will, sometimes due to actual leverage that they have. Even if they did, no, I don't think it will. Okay, who can induce leverage? Uh, and it is China, and therefore, this is the reason why I think Saudi or China is becoming a very important role for. Saudi or an important partner for Saudi because it is not only complementing the Saudi vision, not only becoming a market, but it is making sure investing in a region that Saudi wants to invest in too. You know, the overlap in this. So um, there's a, this is more of an organic relationship, in my opinion. What's about the BRICS and Saudi Arabia? Because, you know, BRICS is basically Chinese slash Russian project, you know. So yeah. so how, how do you understand BRICS? Is BRICS more important than Belt and Road Initiative or that's completely different concepts? I'll be very honest with you. I think right now Saudi is trying to diversify its economy, trying to put all its eggs, not I won't say all its eggs in different baskets, but I think it's becoming, being very careful into where this extent of this diversification so I'm not sure because there is this possibility 
that it will enter bricks. Uh, it is dabbling or flirting with this idea. I think they're waiting and seeing. I think they're they're kind of sort of extending their hand, but they're kind of pulling away at the same time. You know, and and, and why? Because to be honest with you, the way the Saudi vision, in my opinion, still views the world, it views it not in a multipolar world, just a multipolar uh, world, but in asymmetric multipolar world. So while we're all talking about diversification, it still wants relations with the United States. It still sees the United States as its most number one preference. It still wants to do business with the United States. But I don't think it depends on the United States as much as it did before. So this diversification, I mean, if you're going to overly uh, diverse, diversify, then this means, you know, it's less that you can invest somewhere else. So I think Saudi right now in a multiple world is really being uh, challenged, I would say, uh, at its balancing mechanisms. There's just more things to balance. And by the way, there's not only just more things to balance, but the cost of misbalancing is even bigger now for Saudi Arabia because funds and money is, is, is a lot less. The whole reason why Saudi is doing this is to diversify its income. And now its investments, you know, they're, they're a lot more careful about where they invest. And you see this, for example, in giving aid in the region. Uh, Al-Jad'an, I think, um, the, the minister of uh, finance, uh, you know, said there's no more uh, blank checks. You know, this idea that Saudi is going to be just giving money for, for other states, for either Syria or for either uh, um, Egypt or others, you know, this illustrates the fact that, okay, Saudi is a lot more careful with where it's money because it has no other choice to. So it's being, you know, it's diversifying, but I'm not sure if it's going to over diversify. And I think BRICS is still a project that it's studying. Many students, they say Saudi Arabia in terms of energy security, that's out of discussion because they have oil and they have money. So what's, what's, what's the matter, you know? What is the real situation with the sustainable energy projects in Saudi Arabia? You know, because we read about many mega projects in Saudi Arabia, for instance, projects like uh, the city called Neom Line, you know, all those things where modern technologies are going to be used. It's interesting because you're right, this idea that there's mega projects, uh, there's a lot of mega projects. So it's not, so Neom is the city, Line is the city within Neom, I think, 170 kilometers, that's just a line. Um, but it's going to be zero emissions, etc. There's also the square. There's also the hexagon, I think, or octagon. I, I was very excited because I'm a USC fan. So I, when I saw the hexagon, octagon, I was, uh, you know, I was like, definitely, I, I want to move there. But um, so there are these these projects, and it requires a lot of funding and a steady form of funding. But that's precisely why Saudi you see a Saudi first in its energy politics. And this is why, for example, a few months ago in, in October 2022, last year, uh, there, was a, there was a rift between the US and, uh, uh, and Saudi because Saudi uh, didn't increase 
the oil uh, output in order to make sure that the, the, the oil prices stay at a particular level that will enable the funding of these projects. And I think what's interesting, this aspect of sustainability, because in my opinion, I think Saudi, what Saudi doesn't want, and this is according to its um, the oil minister, Abdelaziz bin Salman, so MBS's older half-brother, uh, who's actually very well respected. I mean, he's interesting because he's very well respected here. And I think he and I think he has the ear of the crown prince, in my opinion. I think he's someone who's, you know, he's playing a very big role. Um, uh, in my opinion, he is saying, OK, we're not going to going to prefer short term gains. We want to make sure the market is sustainable and steady and grows steadily to gain the uh, investors confidence so investors can then produce their confident can be can be confident in their in their investor investments and that is their approach now uh, i think it's very interesting because i think you see two tracks here you see a track that's trying to gain foreign direct investment already and by the way saudi arabia and riyadh especially is changing physically it's changing. I mean, I went to UK 10 days ago, came back, and all of a sudden it's like, okay, that wasn't here. <laughs> you know, and the, the, when I came back, so it is, there is this urgency in changing. Um, it is to, and, and this is very interesting too. So I never thought I would see this, but there was someone with a tank top in the airport. Uh, and uh, I'm not sure if someone told her something or, or not, but I remember thinking to myself, okay, th this is very different, you know, and, and and tourism is different. So Saudi's trying to attract, create that kind of stream to 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 have that income too, but at the same time, while maintaining that energy sustainability. You know, so there's there's a different ways of its managing to fund these projects, and 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 these projects are designed to be. To make Saudi stand on its own two feet without uh, oil, I'll be very honest with you. It's a very ambitious topic. A lot of people probably ask, "Well, are they going to achieve it by 2030?" The reality is, my my response is that I don't think 2030 as a year is not is not overly important. I think the fact the the, the main thing of 2030 vision is that to jolt the Saudi society, to jolt the Saudi economy, to jolt the Saudi government to change the ways it's doing things. Otherwise, you know, we're, we're, it's, we're not going to survive. We're, we're, we're going to be very, very difficult times. We're going to see very difficult times. The last question for today's interview, the Saudi Arabia's role in combating international terrorism, which is a very important topic. Also, when we speak about geopolitical position of the Saudi Arabia. This goes back to your first question about Saudi identity and, and what I've alluded to, which is the, the Saudi symbolism. So for a very long time, Saudi did have its issues with extremists within Saudi, which a lot of people didn't know about, by the way. I don't, I, you know, I, I mean, my brother, for example, uh, he, he just retired. He was in the National Guard and we're all very, very proud of him. He's a major general now, uh, but he, he retired. I remember him being a young captain, uh, leaving the house immediately uh, to fight against or combat uh, Al-Qaeda uh, in Saudi. 
So a lot of people don't realize that that phase in Saudi history. But and I remember bombs exploding. I remember going to school and seeing shootouts on the way to school. And and so there was a terrible time in Saudi that it, it developed in Saudi history. And so I think Saudi realized that it needed to be more assertive and to make sure uh, the Saudi identity, Saudi scholars and Saudi uh, religious scholars uh, are on the same page and to be more proactively against terrorism or against any forms of extremism. Because unfortunately, I think there was a time where it was being it was being too loose. There were too many people talking, kind of straying on their own, talking about things that, you know, caused extremism. So this was a real domestic issue. Um, and so, but when it came to combating terrorism, uh, I mean, it, it was very much, uh, it was very much a challenge for them. And I think they made sure to use the biggest tool that they have, which is their identity. As a result, they are instrumentalizing this identity against this to counter, counter, uh, it's the best counterterrorism tool. So, for example, people that were fighting against theirs, there were security apparatuses, apparatus, security officials, part of the security apparatuses here in Saudi. What were they called? They were called Mujahideen. So it's a way of, of making sure to reclaim the identity of what a, another, someone saying Mujahideen, what they could have been doing somewhere else. So here it's like, okay, no, there, there seems to be this... Uh, hegemonization of this religious identity and saying, okay, everything else is not legitimate religiously. So that was the first effort. And that's what they could do more of too, by the way. They, they can, we, we still need to do a lot more of. Um, but I think when it combats its role globally, I think as a result of this and the amount of uh, experience that Saudi has in combating terrorism, again, a lot of people don't know this, but it became a very important partner for the West in gaining intelligence, in uh, providing intelligence for them of imminent acts of terrorism that's going to take place in Western countries. So as a result of its dealing with, um, with, uh, with terrorism and, 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 and not dealing with it, but really trying to combat it, um, it it gained a lot of experience, and I think it became a lot of a lot more importance. It gained a lot more importance in 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 Western capitals. Now, to be honest, I think a lot of people overemphasize the fact that Saudi Arabia supported uh, um, the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, and this is true. This is part of Saudi history, but this that's when the West were also supporting the Mujahideen there too against the communists. So. You know, I think somehow a lot of the times people forget about that the West supported that, uh, those people, and they kind of make sure only Saudi Arabia supported them, uh, and they still do, which they don't, because Saudi actually was the was at the receiving end of this. So it's there is a, a, a misunderstanding, and again, it goes back to the tendency of, you know, there's a there's a temptation to look at Saudi Arabia in the lens of terrorism and supporting terrorism because uh, a religious sheikh here in Saudi Arabia that may be well against talking, 
may well be against Saudi, uh, about, about terrorists, looks like the same people that are in Afghanistan with a beard. So you're talking about aesthetics and you're actually talking implicitly, there's some racism there too, you know? So it speaks to a bigger issue, this idea between Saudi Arabia and others. So, so you know, engaging, being honest is, is this, that yes, Saudi Arabia did support this. Yes, Saudi Arabia did support Islamic schools all over, but what do these Islamic schools do? You know, this is something that Saudi negotiated with. Saudi Arabia is still doing, by the way. Saudi Arabia is still supporting, spreading mosques, spreading, I'm sorry, uh, uh, holy Qurans and holy texts and here and there. This, this is part of Saudi identity. But I think what it is making sure and what you can always improve on is to make sure, okay, where is this going to and how are people going to do what are they going to do about it? So that's the thing that they could, we could always improve more. Said Dr. Aziz Algashian. Aziz, thank you very much for your time, insightful thoughts and excellent remarks about the geopolitics of Saudi Arabia. I'm very happy that you found time for our viewers and students. I wish you good luck with your research, uh, with your articles, with your publishing and also with your teaching, because I know that people like you, people like your teaching style and how you can explain very difficult topics in a very comprehensive way. Thank you, Thank you. for being on IRA Think Tank. My pleasure, and it's a great pleasure to be here with you. Thank you all. See you next time. Take care, my friend.